its eastern boundary has placed it strategically along one of the busiest oil shipping lanes in the world. Northwest from the Red Sea, across the sands of the Sudan, lies Egypt. To the south of Ethiopia is a desert which separates the country from the rest of Africa. To the southwest lies what has been called the heart of the Dark Continent, some of Africa's least explored territory. Indeed, much of this area remained virtually uncharted until the late 19th century. Ethiopia has been called Africa's Tibet. It is a country of soaring mountains, isolated plateaus, and deep valleys. In one of these many valleys, anthropologists have discovered jaw fragments of a man who lived 10 to 15,000 years ago. The famed anthropologist Dr. Louis Leakey commented on the findings of the last few decades. Men of science today are, with few exceptions, satisfied that Africa was the birthplace of man himself, and that for many hundreds of centuries thereafter, Africa was in the forefront of all world progress. Ethiopia, or Abyssinia as it is known in the Bible, is one of the birthplaces of mankind. Indeed, archaeological finds dating from the 5th or 6th century B.C. indicate that Ethiopia hosted a succession of civilizations. Because its history seems to stretch from the mists of time, Ethiopia has long been a land of legend. Some of the legends have been incorporated into the Kubra Negest, or Glory of the Kings. This is the Ethiopian chronicle that details the founding of the nation and the glory of its kings. The Kubra Negest traces the Ethiopian royal house back to the union of Sheba, queen of Abyssinia, and Solomon, king of Israel. Slightly different versions of this tale also appear in the Bible and in the Koran. But the Ethiopian version says that when Solomon was building a temple to house the Ark of the Covenant, the symbol of God's promise to man, he sent out a call to merchants of the known world. Among those who responded was Tomrin of Ethiopia, who brought red gold and sapphires and black wood that could not be eaten by worms. Upon his return, Tomrin gave a marvelous report about Solomon to the Ethiopian queen, Sheba. Sheba then determined to visit him herself. Solomon entertained her honorably, and before long she abandoned her religion, the worship of the moon and the stars, to worship the God of Israel. The Bible offers a record of Sheba's reaction in 1 Kings chapter 10. And she said to the king, It was a true report that I heard in mine own land of thy acts and of thy wisdom. Howbeit I believed not the words until I came and mine eyes had seen it. And behold, the half was not told me. Thy wisdom and prosperity exceedeth the fame which I heard. Happy are thy men, happy are these thy servants, which stand continually before thee, and that hear thy wisdom. Blessed be the Lord thy God, which delighted in thee to set thee on the throne of Israel. According to the Kubra Negest, Sheba returned to her kingdom, but only after becoming pregnant with Solomon's child. Before she left, Solomon gave Sheba a ring, saying, If thou hast a son, give it to him and send him to me. 
Their son, Menelik, later came to Jerusalem with the ring, and Solomon tried to persuade him to stay and rule Israel. Menelik insisted on returning to Abyssinia. Solomon anointed his son with the holy oil of kingship and named him David. Then Solomon commanded his counselors and officers. I am sending you my firstborn son to rule in Ethiopia. Do yet also send your firstborn sons to be his counselors and officers. But the sons of Israel were sorry to leave behind Our Lady of Zion, the Ark of the Covenant. In secret, they took the Ark with them to Ethiopia. When Solomon discovered this theft, he hid the knowledge so that the children of Israel would not despair. Thus, the kings of Ethiopia not only claimed descent from Solomon, but also claimed to be the guardians of the Ark of the Covenant. As a state, Ethiopia has survived more or less continuously for thousands of years. Indeed, Ethiopia was organized into city-states before Rome was founded. The first Europeans to visit Ethiopia were Greek explorers sent out in the 3rd century B.C. Egyptian rulers had asked them to chart the coast of the Red Sea. Early Greek literature refers to the Ethiopian region, which was on the fringe of the known world. The literature speaks of the ancient kingdom of Aksum, one of Africa's greatest civilizations. Aksum was an advanced culture of art, fine architecture, coinage, and manuscripts. The city-state of Aksum had emerged in the 6th century B.C. and quickly became a great port, with ships arriving from Italy, India, Persia, and Greece. This international trade was first described in print in the anonymous Periplus of the Erythrean Sea, which some historians date from the first century. There are imported undressed cloth made in Egypt, robes from Arsinoe, many articles of flint glass, and others of myrene made in Diospolis, wine of Laodicea and Italy. Likewise, from the district of Ariaca across this sea, there are imported Indian cloth called monach and girdles and coats of skin and mallow-colored cloth. There are exported ivory and tortoiseshell and rhinoceros horn. Cosmas, an Egyptian monk, described how trade was conducted among people of different languages. Having told how traders brought goods into a mining district of Ethiopia, he continued, Then come the natives, bringing gold in nuggets like peas, called tabgaras, and lay one or two more of these upon what pleases them, the piece of the flesh, or the salt, or the iron, and then they retire to some distance off. Then the owner of the meat approaches, and if he is satisfied, he takes the gold away. And upon seeing this, its owner comes and takes the flesh or the salt or the iron. If, however, he is not satisfied, he leaves the gold. When the native, seeing he has not taken it, comes and either puts down more gold or takes up what he had laid down and goes away. Such is the mode in which business is transacted with the people of the country, because their language is different 
and interpreters are hard to find. The upper classes of Aksum adopted Greek as a second tongue, and ideas were soon exchanged as freely as other goods. In the fourth century, Christianity reached Aksum. It came in the form of two Syrian youths. The fourth century writer Rufinus told the story of these two brothers whose ship had put into port. The younger of these was called Odysseus, the other Frumentius. The ship was boarded, and all were put to the sword. The boys were found studying under a tree and preparing their lessons, and, preserved by the mercy of the barbarians, were taken to the king. He made one of them, Odysseus, his cupbearer. Frumentius, whom he had perceived to be sagacious and prudent, he made his treasurer and secretary. Thereafter they were held in great honor and affection by the king. In 326, Frumentius became the first archbishop of Aksum. Several decades later, the rulers of Ethiopia and most notables were baptized into the Christian religion, and the Old and New Testaments were translated into Ga'iz, also known as Ethiopic, the national language of Ethiopia. The Bible was taught a little differently, but in most ways Ethiopia became a Christian country in the European sense of that word. Because of its location, Christian Aksum was intimately connected with the birth of Islam, or the Muslim world. In 571 AD, the prophet Muhammad was born. About that time, the armies of King Caleb of Aksum marched against Mecca and would have taken it except for what Islam describes as a hail of stones from heaven. These stones might have been a metaphor for the outbreak of bubonic plague, or they might have been a particularly severe hailstorm.